Today's sermon text comes from Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone, my soul awaits, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Selah. For God alone, oh, my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is, is from him. He alone, he only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. Those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no trust in exhortation. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. For you will render to a man according to his work. This is God's word. Amen. Our current series is Putting on Christ. And our goal is just that. It is to immerse ourselves in Jesus. Um, I've spent a lot of time over the last 20 years or so being with people in their addictions, in their brokenness, in their sin. I've been with myself in my own brokenness and sin. And one of the things that it, it took me a really, really long time to learn this, but the only answer, the only thing that we need is to thirst and yearn and reach for Jesus and to drink deeply of him. We want you to be changed. We want you to experience deep transformation in your life. We really want that. We really want that. So in week one, we've been, we've been getting way underneath the surface, trying to start down low and work our way up to the top. We didn't want to start by giving you three points on how to overcome that addictive tendency in your life. Because three points didn't get you to where you are. Three points won't get you out. We need to go down underneath the surface and deal with the depths of our heart. And so in week one, we began by teaching you, challenging you with the truth that if you are a follower of Jesus, Satan has no authority over your life. None. So we've got to change the narrative from I just can't overcome this to Jesus is king. And as we submit ourselves to Jesus and surrender to Jesus, we will experience growing freedom in our lives. That's not just mind tricks, mind games that we're playing here. That is true. Satan really is defeated in the lives of believers. You don't have to continue to tell yourself that you can't overcome that complexity, that sin, that story that binds you. In week two, 
we spent time talking about what I let off with this morning. And that is, is that our answer is to drink from Jesus. We must drink from the supremacy, from the beauty of Jesus. In our culture, the Bible Belt, we are taught to compartmentalize Jesus to a Bible study, to a prayer time, to a devotional reading plan, to a church service. And we've got a lot of people in the church that know how to compartmentalize that really, really well. But we are not, few of us are shot through with the presence of Jesus. And that is hard to convince church people to embrace that. Because we don't want to be shot through with Jesus. We want Jesus to fix us so we can continue to have authority and lordship over our own lives and do with our lives what we wish. But to follow Jesus means surrendering all that we are to him. I know that's intense. But if you really want to experience transformation, you've got to wrap your mind around that and just say, okay, it's intense. Whew, that's a lot. That should remind us that our God is a consuming fire. He is a consuming fire. He is not a lighter that we can turn on and off at our bidding. He is a consuming fire. Today, we're going to go a little bit deeper. I'm trying to give you the whole story. I want you to know what you're getting into or what you've already blundered your way into. I want you to know where you are and where you're going. And so I'm going to lead off by saying this. Serving Jesus is hard. One amen. That's okay. That's okay. That's o- I'm, happy. I'm, I'm pleased with that. Because I'm hoping that scripture will hold a mirror up to our souls and show us our impairments and the way that we think about Christianity. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked a lot about the cheap grace that Christianity had become. He was saying that 70 years ago about Western Christianity. And so what I want to do today is to just remind us, to tell us that serving Jesus is hard. It is the most beautiful thing you could enter into. It is glorious. It is totally transformational. It is worth every moment that you carry your cross in Christ. But Christianity, make no mistake, is difficult. It is not easy. It's not. I remember when I was in Bible college 24 years ago, I think. My roommate, we were both in the, um, we were both resident assistants and we were paired together. He was, his name was Marco. He was from Hamburg, Germany. Mar- Mar- Marco and I clashed a lot. I mean, every sensitivity that he had, I was guilty of committing. I mean, it was daily treasons I committed against Marco. And just by the way that I lived and how disgusting I was as a uh, sort of a teenager learning how to become a man. And, and um, I drove him crazy. I was just, uh, just everything that he wasn't. He was disciplined, theologically savvy, strong, all those things. And, um, but as different as we were, he was very dear to me. And I'll never forget one day I came back into my room after hearing some terrible, terrible news. Um, A friend of Marco's, I knew this man. He was was an African gentleman. He was from Zimbabwe, I think. 
um, he lived in campus housing and his house had caught fire. And, you know, the NBA playoffs are going on right now and listening to talk radio is a little nauseating at times because all of us, you know, armchair point guards, I guess you could say, are always second-guessing these multi-millionaire star athletes, professional basketball players. Why didn't you do this instead of that? As though we would not have made that mistake in the heat of the moment. And so, um, but this man who is one of the most selfless men that I knew, this, and I forget his name, this Zimbabwean man, he, his house was burning down. He got his family and his children out. And, and I guess he thought, maybe I have a moment to go get my car out of the garage. And he ran back into the house and he never came out. Horrific. His wife immediately became a widow. His kids fatherless. This is Marco's dearest friend. And I will never forget going into my dorm room that day, knowing that Marco knew because the whole campus knew an announcement was made in chapel that day and slowly opening the door to my room and seeing Marco weeping on his bed as he sat there, weeping. And he had his guitar in his lap. And as he was weeping, he could barely sing. He was worshiping Jesus. And I felt like I walked into a holy place. And I quietly walked over to my bed and I sat down and I just stared at him. I just sat there and just stared at him. Because Marco, in that moment of his deep pain, it held a mirror up to me. And he knew God in a way that I didn't. He knew God in a way that I didn't. I've never forgotten that moment. And it didn't go away with a little praise and worship. But all he knew to do was to pour his heart out before God. Man, I know I harp on the decadence of our culture a lot from behind this pulpit. And I don't want to come across like a fundamentalist. I don't want to come across as though I'm oversimplifying and always beating down on the things of this world and um, like maybe like the preacher that you grew up with that you're, you just eventually became deaf to. But I love you. I care about you. And I really, really want to see the move of God in your life. I really do. And so I think a lot about the decadence of our culture and how it impacts all of your lives and how it impacts my life. And I wonder, as Tundria read that text this morning, how can God really be a refuge to us when we medicate with all of the stimulants that this world serves us on a silver platter every day? And we just, we just take it all, man. And it kills me when I see that. I've done it in my own life at times. We all have. For many of us, the sad truth is, is that God is not a refuge. We don't know what that means. He's not. Netflix is, but not God. Busyness is, but not God. Sports is a refuge, but not God. Our children can be our refuge as we vicariously live through them. Our careers can be a refuge, 
but not God. Money, affluence, possessing material beauty can be our refuge. And here's the thing. A lot of us struggle with these things. And we still feel an affinity for Jesus. We feel a connection with Jesus. We like Jesus. But Jesus isn't our refuge. There's a difference between Jesus having an affinity for Jesus and drinking from Jesus. There's a huge difference. God is viewed not as a refuge for many of us in the church, but as a burden. He's a burden. I mean, let's be honest. God is complex. He is complex. And because God is complex, it's difficult to know God, much less find refuge in God. God is hard to understand. God is unpredictable. God's activity in our lives on those rare occasions that we even notice it is subtle, it's counterintuitive, he's enigmatic, he seems disproportionately silent when we're hurting. And to top it off, God is spirit. I don't know about you, but that's not intuitive for me to communicate with a spirit. I don't know how to do that well. And because underneath all of that, we don't like the fact that life is hard, serving God can be hard, and we feel this allergy to hard things, we push away from God. We push away from him. Because hardness isn't God's will for my life, right? Hard difficulties, that's not God's will for my life. And so because I already believe, already underneath all of that, that hard is bad, I push away from God, and God therefore can't be a refuge to me. Because hard is bad. And so we respond to that with things like this. Well, Chris, you say serving Jesus is hard, but Jesus said my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, all you who labor and find rest. When Jesus says that his yoke is easy in Matthew 11, he's not saying my yoke is simple. What he's saying is, is that compared to the crushing legalism of ancient Judaism, my ways are easier. And not only that, you could submit to every single demand of the law and you're not going to find rest for your soul, but you will with me. And so in that same text, we often overlook that Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly, come and learn from me. Or this way, let your soul be reshaped by me. That is not easy. That is not easy. It means facing our deepest, darkest demons. It means living, learning to live a life of repentance. It means owning our garbage. Owning it. 
and no longer blaming. Yep, our story was contributed to by somebody else, maybe in some horrific ways. But we still have to own what we've become. We have to own that. And so I'm challenging us today, if you still want to join me, I mean, you know, I suppose you've got your phone there. You could jump on Facebook and, man, surf away. But if you want rest for your soul, as we're getting into week three of what it looks like to follow Jesus, to be free of darkness and sin and addiction and evil tendencies and bad habits in our lives, I invite you as a fellow sojourner. Let's walk together this morning for a few minutes. Let's walk together. We're going to Psalm 62 today. And the reason we're going to Psalm 62 is, man, it's just a good psalm for this. (laughs) Um, I want to talk about the conflict in Psalm 62 first. So if you've got your Bibles, open those up. Open up that that, that, um, app on your smartphone. Look at the screens. Be engaged. I want to remind everybody here of the challenge that I've been giving for six months. And that challenge is this. What if every single time you came to one of our gatherings... You took notes, and I don't mean copious notes, but stayed with the logic, the flow of the message, and maybe wrote down words, phrases, thoughts, and recorded some things that God is speaking to you as we go along. And then throughout the week, listen to that message another couple of times and study your notes and reflect on what God spoke to you. In addition to that, maybe take the morning's text like Psalm 62 and make that your devotional time this week. So Monday, you're thinking about and praying through Psalm 62. Tuesday, you're thinking about and praying through Psalm 62. And you've done that every day during the week. I know, I know, I know. Gosh, I'm not getting far enough in the Bible, Chris. If you can kill all that in your head, you've got a lifetime to read the Bible, but really drink from Scripture. What would happen to your life if 52 weeks out of the year you did that? What would you look like in 52 weeks? Rather than feeling guilty because you've missed so many days in your year-long Bible reading plan. I'm not saying don't read a year-long Bible reading plan. That's good. But I'm saying to you, the Bible doesn't say read me in a year. It says to drink of me and to know me and to feast on me. That's what we need to do. That's what we need to do. What would your life look like? So I challenge you, don't put it on me today to wow you. I probably won't. Let's put it on us together to commune over God's word. Let's do that this morning. So Psalm 62, verses 3 and 4, check this out. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? David is talking about himself. Some theologians think that what's going on right now is that it's possible that this is during Absalom's civil war that he started in Israel. Absalom, David's son. He has taken the kingdom from David and has sent his messengers to try to hunt David down like a wild animal. David, King David, is on the run. Totally on the run. Talk about an ignoble moment in David's life. And this lasted for some time. On the run. He's lived that way before. He was on the run from King Saul for a long time. 
David's always, it seems like he's always running from something in his life. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall or a tottering fence? Like a leaning wall or a tottering fence. He uses that word leaning fence. Now for us, a fence is a privacy fence. That's the culture we grew up in. I don't have to worry about Vikings attacking my house. That doesn't happen much in my neighborhood. I don't know about yours. Um, I don't think Mongols are going to come riding down the street and shoot flaming arrows through my windows. You know, I know that dangerous things can happen in our city. But when we think of fences in our world, we don't think of walls of protection. We think of privacy fences. Things to keep the neighbor's dog out of our yard. Fences to keep people from messing with our grass. All that stuff. That's not the kind of fence David had in mind. He's probably thinking about a wall, some sort of a defensive wall. And he says, I feel like a defensive wall that is leaning. And all you've got to do as my enemy is come and shove it down. This is a poetic way of saying, I feel really, really vulnerable. I'm broken. I'm weak. I don't know what to do. We often feel like that. He says, they, his enemies, maybe his son, but some enemies who are after him, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They take pleasure in falsehood. Anybody have people like that in your life? They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths but inwardly they curse. And so David is describing the people in his life that apparently he's kind of close to who say wonderful things to him, who tell him how fantastic he is and how great a king that he is, but inwardly they are harboring a resentment that's growing into an assault on him. They despise him. His relationships feel like that. This is part of the reason, it's because of those verses that I'm primarily using this text this morning. Because a lot of us are in that place. Now, you may not be able to think of like this searing, painful uh, experience or person who's in your life right now. Maybe you're thinking, oh, yeah, I've got some guys in my life or people in my life that are really hard and difficult, but, you know, I just keep my distance and I don't really feel that that much. But we all know what it's like to live in this world and to be battered, and we know what it's like to be abused. We know what that's like. And these rhythms that we live in our entire life shape us and contort our hearts in such a way that we actually push push away from God who should be our refuge and push into other things as a refuge. Because serving God is hard. Serving God can be hard. Every one of us, Every one of us have this in our life. I want you to take a moment right now, seriously, take a moment and reflect on this. Who are the people in your life who are hurting or who have hurt you? Think about that. Think about the story. Think about what it's done to you. Think about the feelings that you feel, the sadness, the rage. 
Think about that. Think about that betrayal. The relational tension that you endure every single day with this particular person. Think about that time that you were falsely accused or maybe you're being falsely accused right now. Think about the sadness and the angst that you're experiencing related to old, old, old wounds. I don't want to let you off the hook too easy though. Because every one of us in here who are hurting, we're also hurters. So this isn't just about me going, oh yeah, that person and that person and that person. Oh, it's such a trial. Oh, God help me. We've got to look at our own hearts. Because here's the thing, here's something else that our world is shaping us all into. And I see this as rampant in our society. And it's this. We are being taught, we are being shaped to become easily offendable, overly sensitive people. So that the slightest, the slightest transgression we suffer brings that relationship crashing down. We've never learned the hard rhythms and processes that we walk through to restore and rebuild a relationship. Matthew 18 is one of the least practiced texts in all of Scripture. Jesus said that when somebody has offended you, go to that person and share your offense with that person alone. And if that person hears you, some texts say if you have won that, if, if, if that person hears you, you have won that person, praise the Lord, praise Jesus. It didn't say praise the Lord, praise Jesus, but, you know, it's good. Good things happen. And then he says this, if that person doesn't hear you, take someone else along with you. The implication, I think, is a trustworthy, godly person. Bring that person into the conversation. And the idea is not to beat that person down with a rebuke, but to restore the relationship. And it's in that context in Matthew 18 that Jesus says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there in the midst of them. He's not talking about a prayer meeting. He's not talking about us showing up at the movies. Hey, we're all here to see Iron Man together. That's awesome. Jesus is with us because there's like seven of us here right now. That is so cool. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about two or three people restoring and rebuilding a relationship. That's hard because that means having conversations with people that you don't want to have facing them, facing junk in your relationship because it's easier to gossip. It's easier just to stay mad and fume. It's easier to do that. But because Jesus loves you, Jesus tells you the truth. Don't do that because that's going to reshape you. It's going to turn you into something less than human. Do everything you can. You can hear the echoes of Jesus in this text. Do everything that you can to obliterate your tendency to be easily offended. Kill it. It's not worth it. And in our culture, a lot of us, our identity is rooted in being easily offended. We can't imagine life without anger and bitterness. We don't know what to do with ourselves with a pure heart. And to have a simple love for a brother and sister who, yeah, may be trying and testing, but still facilitating and cultivating a simple love for that brother or that sister. 
We are all facing this in our lives. So when Jesus says, come and learn from me, I am gentle and I am lowly of heart. What he's saying implicitly is learn how to have a gentle and lowly heart just like me. Learn how to have a gentle and lowly heart just like me. The lack of amens is stunning right now. I love this, man. So what's our response when our lives are feeling like leaning walls? What do we do in that situation? What do we do? He says, for God alone in verse one, my soul waits in silence for God alone. From him comes my salvation. Now, that's one of those verses like, what? what? I wait in silence. Okay. I don't know how to do that well. I don't know about you guys. I'm terrible at waiting in silence. But then he repeats it in verse 5. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. So twice in 12 or 13 verses, the psalmist says, For God alone, my soul waits in silence. Let me give you a little cue on how to read poetry. If an idea is repeated, it's really, really important. And that seems to be the backbone of Psalm 62. When you feel like a leaning wall, When you feel like you are one shove from being pushed down and being destroyed, he says this, wait in silence for God. Now, I don't think what he's saying here is that every time you've got a problem, don't talk to God. I don't think he's saying that. If you go down to verse 8, he says, talk to God. So what do I do, David? Do I be wait in silence or do I talk to God? I think you've got to see this in the context of what's going on. He's talking to us who feel abused and overtaken and exploited by people in our lives. And I think what he's saying is this. Rather than continually brooding on other people's offenses, silence your heart and go to God. Be with him. Be with him. My friend Bruce, Bruce Crow, second very dear friend from Bible college. I got to enjoy he and his wife and his eight kids at my house on Thursday and Friday. I said eight. <laughs> I've never asked him if they believe in birth control. I don't know if I should go there, but <laughs> but I think he notices it. I think he notices it. I think he, but an incredulous glance sometimes will communicate what I'm thinking. All his kids are walking in and I've got like 30 pairs of shoes in my front entryway and I'm just looking at him like, I think he gets the point. But anyway, um, Colin, Siobhan, I love you guys dearly. Um, But my friend Bruce is a missionary in the Ukraine and it's hard over there. Um, There's a lot of political, uh, man, a lot of political fear over there. They live very close to the Crimea region that Russia swept in over the last couple of years and took from Ukraine. And so um, the economy is in shambles. They do do mission in a town, and really all of Ukraine is like this, where there's really no hope. 
Um, it's amazing how the former Soviet Union, the spirit, that specter is still there in people's minds and in their hearts. And, um, and so he does, he went into the Ukraine with his wife about eight years ago and they started this little coffee shop called Lighthouse Cafe, Lighthouse Cafe. And they introduced to this town that only has liquor stores, no restaurants, only liquor stores. It is totally hopeless there. Tons of college kids, kids who graduated from college, and because there's no jobs, you've got all these smart kids walking around doing nothing. There's nowhere to go. Nobody has money. There's total hopelessness. So he goes into this little town, starts the Lighthouse Cafe. It's been robbed about 30 times since he's been there, literally, sometimes while they were sleeping. And they're doing ministry there, and they introduce to this little town the banana split. They are rock stars in this town. Little, little elderly families are coming, couples are coming in and having their date nights and getting a banana split. They never heard of the latte before that happened, before he got there. He gives them lattes and Americanos and all these things, and these people love it there. So what's happened over eight years is every single night, Almost every teenager and college kid in that town comes and they eat banana splits and drink coffee and they worship for hours. Now, he's not applied the form of church to it yet because they're coming out of um, some really jacked up Orthodox and you know, Russian Orthodox stuff. But they get together and they're worshiping and he's just showing them how to follow Jesus. And the things like I just said in Matthew 18, you know, go to a person who's offended you. And everybody here is like, oh, I'm doing that. When he teaches it over there, those people can't get enough of it. They can't get enough of it. But life over there is hard. The winters are bitter. The churches in their town are hopelessly old school. And they are persecuted by the churches in their town. Mercilessly. They're gossiped about, they're slandered, they are mercifully persecuted by these people. And last year when he was here, they come through once a year, and we all host them at our house, and, and we just spend time together, and we tell stories from what you know old days, and pray together and worship, and it's beautiful. As kids all play instruments, and we just sing. It's amazing. And, and so he tells me, he says, Chris, there's this forest near my house. This forest is dense, it's deep, and that when I am hurting the most... I will walk into that forest in the morning and I won't come out until that evening. And I stay in there until the hurt and the bitterness that's in my heart, until that brooding that I have inside of me sinks up with the kingdom of God. And I can leave that forest and I can love that Baptist church better down the street. And I can love those Methodists the way I should love them. And I can love the college kids. And I can love those people. They're all their parents, many of their parents, who are drunks and alcoholics and in just, just so much darkness. I stay there until my heart is right with God. And here's the thing. That doesn't just happen once or twice a year. He has to do that all the time. Because it's always hard. One five-hour day in the forest doesn't make the devil go away. He still has to go in there day after day after day and align his heart with Jesus. That's what it means to find rest in God. Find rest in him.
to hold on to him until I'm changed. And so he says, for God alone, my soul waits in silence. For God alone, he says, my soul waits in silence. For God alone. Give me a second. I feel like I need to skip something and do something else. David says something beautiful. In verse 6, verse 5 and 6, he says, My hope is from God, from him. And then he says this, He only, in verse 6, is my rock and my salvation. He only. My hope is in God. He only is my fortress. And he says, I shall not be shaken. I shall not be shaken. In order to be a person who is not shaken, we have to go through shaking. You don't become an unshakable person in prayer alone. You don't become an unshakable person memorizing a couple of verses. Church attendance does not make you an unshakable person. What makes us unshakable people is believing with all of our hearts that I must feast on the Holy Spirit. This is the only way that you and I are not going to get owned by the darkness in our lives every day anymore. It's the only way. In order to be an unshakable person, you have to go through shaking. And so God will allow trials and tribulation to come your way. Remember, serving God is hard. Now here's the thing. If you don't serve Jesus, trials are still going to come your way. We live in a broken world. But if you are willing to follow Jesus' lead and surrender to him, Jesus will shape you into an unshakable person. Now, when I say unshakable, I don't mean a person who's perfect. David was far from perfect. And sadly, because we know David's story, we often use him as an excuse to justify and rationalize our own sin. Well, you know, like David committed adultery. So, I can watch a little porn. I mean, God forgave him, right? <laughs> David had a woman's wife, a woman's, a woman's husband murdered that he slept with. So I don't really feel that guilty for being mad at somebody for a long time. The difference between David and somebody like that is David maintained a pure heart and was broken before God. And when God crushed him, and dealt with him, David didn't push back from God. He leaned in. He leaned in. There are people who say that what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. The problem with that statement is that can be entirely true without God's help. And then here's the second thing. As though the problem is your source, as though the trial 
or the crisis is your source. No, God is your source. But here's a second thing we've got to think about. For those of us who believe that, that, max, that, that, that maxim, that what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger. What do we mean by stronger when we say that? For many, to be strong means that we have acquired a hide made of steel. We've become calloused. We are so cynical and our ability to feel compassion is so impaired. We lack empathy. We lack mercy. We lack hope. So when the darkness of our world is trotted out in front of us, we feel little responsibility to respond and do something about that. Because we're cynical. I'm a survivor. And survivors, they live by one thing. I'm watching out for myself. I'm watching out for myself. That is not what spiritual resiliency is. That is totally different. That is totally different. In its place, spiritual resiliency comes isolation, self-sufficiency, and we become less than human. But here's the difference between David and others. David maintained a childlike faith. He maintained a pure heart. If you read this psalm all the way through as we did a while ago, there's something about David that is beautiful. He is still in awe of the glory and the grandeur of God. He's not grown accustomed to God. He's not used to God. He's still growing and he has a pure heart. And then he says in verse 8, here's where we'll end with this. In verse 8 he says this, Know God. Know Him. Know Him. Lean into Him. Thirst for Him. Depend on Him. Be nourished by Him. And you may be sitting here thinking, I have no idea how to do that. Then let me show you. Let me show you. Nobody ever takes me up on this. Let me show you. If I scare you, let me pair you up with somebody who's lowly and gentle. And they will show you how to do it. But let us show you. Let us show you how to thirst for Jesus and depend on Jesus. I don't put myself out there as an expert on this. I'm not. I'm not. But I do thirst for him. I want to know him. And he says we can take two things to the bank with this. I know I said the last thing, but this is really the last thing. Um, I was just teasing you the first time. Um, Verses 11 and 12. David says this, Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. So, did God speak once or twice? That's just a poetic way of saying, here's the point. Here's the point. Two things he's learned. One, power belongs to God. And so if you're going to thirst for Jesus, what we're going to have to get down in our hearts is this. 
that all the people in our lives who are a threat to us, they're not a threat to us. All the people in our lives who disrespect us, it doesn't matter. God holds the keys to my life. No one else does. Satan is bound. Now, you're not going to get that today. I still haven't got that yet. A lot of days, I do get that. And then there are some days that I wake up and out of nowhere, inexplicably, this fear is just bubbling up with inside of me. I don't know what is going on. And so I walk into the woods and I sink up my heart with Jesus. I'm not going to stay that way. And here's the second thing he says you can take to the bank. I love this. Verse 12. And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Steadfast love. What does steadfast mean? What? Constant? What else? Never ending. Unceasing. Unbreakable. Never give up love. Loyal love. Why does he say that about God? Now, let me me help you understand something here. This is not a chapter about just anybody. This is not about God's loyal love to people who don't give a flip about God. They use the word steadfast love because in the original language, what it's talking about, what it's pointing to is God's covenant love. It's the kind of love that God uniquely pours out on those that belong to him. Not those that are still trying to figure out, oh, Jesus, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) I've got time. These are people who have said, you know what? I'm signing the blank piece of paper. I'm going to put my name on it. And God, you can turn that into whatever contract you want. I am surrendered to you. I am yours. And he says that we will experience the sustaining power of God when we are in that kind of a relationship with him, his steadfast love. I want God's steadfast love. I want it. I want every one of you, my vision for your life is that you would be steadfast in God. My vision for your life is that you would be resilient because here's the thing. You will not be a person who thirsts for Jesus and finds rest in Jesus when things are bad. If you don't thirst for Jesus and find rest in Jesus when things are good. The crisis is not your door to Jesus. Peacetime is. Peacetime is. Otherwise, God works for us. And God doesn't work for us. He's not a service provider when things are low and God can get me back up. I want you guys to develop spiritual resiliency in your life. I don't speak as one who's arrived. I don't. I signed up for this stupid My Fitness Pal thing. Oh my gosh. Y'all do My Fitness Pal? Who does My Fitness Pal? It's the dumbest app ever. Um, I'm terrible at it. And there's like a, several guys and a couple of gals that where they, they get to see what I eat every day. It's really embarrassing. 
I was working out recently and, and uh, was doing CrossFit. And, uh, <laughs> don't you love when people say that? I was at CrossFit the other day. They're like, oh, okay, you're tougher than me. Um, I'm in it through two weeks of CrossFit. And I'm jumping rope. And I get like this piercing headache. And the guy's like, dude, you need to go to the doctor. So I go to the doctor. They do the blood pressure thing. And my blood pressure like spikes when I'm doing high impact stuff. So I did CrossFit for two weeks. And, um, and so I'm trying to figure that out now. I'm like, whoa, I've never been told this before. A few years ago, I was told I had elevated cholesterol. And please understand, please hear me, guys. I know I spoke very vulnerably last week. I'm not, tr- I don't, I'm not a narcissist, I don't think. Um, I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to turn you into voyeurs of my life. But I know that there are a lot of you who are afraid just to be known. And I'm telling you, regardless of who the person is that you're with, it's okay to be known. It's really okay. It doesn't matter how spiritual they are. It doesn't matter how strong or weak they are. You can be known. And one of the things that I've learned is that there are people who I might feel like I'm light years ahead of that I need speaking into my life. And I feel like that with this because I stink at this. Like all these guys in the app, I could run around, I could run circles around reading the Bible. But when it comes to eating right, they're killing me. Like every day I look at their, I look, they're always under their calorie count. I'm 6,000 calories over, you know, <laughs> you know. We get Domino's pizza last night and I'm like, well, that ends it. So uh, <laughs> I guess I'll have nine pieces and... Uh, But I'm learning that there's something in my life that I've neglected for a long time, and that's the hard path of being disciplined in the way that I nourish my body. And so that's something I'm learning. Some of you guys out there, you are amazing in that area. You're so good at it. Your habits are so good and so in concrete that you don't even think about it. That's how some of you guys look at my spiritual life. You're like, you don't even think about like prayer, Chris. You're just awesome at it. And I'm like, yeah, maybe compared to some people. Maybe, I doubt it, but maybe. But in other areas of my life, man, I feel like I'm in Mother's Day out. (laughs) And you know what I'm learning about this? Is that Jesus is with me and Jesus is giving me the grace to do this, but I'm still failing a lot because I'm learning. And it's a process and it's going to take time. And that's what spiritual resiliency requires. I don't need God to touch my head and all of a sudden I only eat simple carbohydrates and, and really healthy proteins and only drink water and have killed coffee. That ain't happening. Uh, I, I don't need God to do that in my life. If God did that in my life, I would not be strong and resilient for the next test that's waiting for me. How do I know a test is coming? Because we live in the present evil age and the Bible says that God tests those whom he loves. I need spiritual resiliency. I don't need quick answers. I don't need simple answers. And you don't need simple answers. You don't need me to give you three points on how to be a better Christian. You need me to tell you what a lot of preachers won't, that serving Jesus is difficult. But if you do it, if you tether yourself to him, it will transform your life. I want to close by merging our music. And Jen, come on up here. Jen shared something with me uh, this morning that I felt was really good. And we're going to close with this. Um, I'm just going to give it to you and just, just lead us, will you? So 
And then I'll, I'll take it when you're done. Um, during worship and during Chris's potent message this morning, uh, please drink from that this week. Go back and listen to it. I feel so strongly that the Spirit is asking us and leading us to confess to the Father and to repent um, as individuals, but also as a body together. Um, Not because he's justified to receive our repentance and our confession, although he is 100%. But the sense that I got uh, from the Holy Spirit drawing on my heart was he wants us to confess because he wants to be near to us. He wants to be near to you because he has great affection for you. Great affection for you. So we were singing no other name, no other way but Jesus. And I just felt that you know, prodding inside my heart that said, but we hope in so many other things first. We hope in so many other things first before Jesus. And then we were singing, I need you more. And again, I felt the spirit saying, this is not just a confession for those who really love me and who are really feeling it. This is truth. You need me more. Even when you don't feel it, even when you can't sing it, Even when you don't want to speak it, the truth is you need me more. And so I just want to invite us all to confess right now. He's here. His heart is gentle. He loves you. So if you would just close your eyes, take a deep breath, and be present in this moment right now with the Holy Spirit and pray this in your hearts with me. Father, we confess where we have not trusted you to be the only way, where we have not recognized the truth that we need you more than anything else, forgive us. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you are just. Our debt has been paid. You declared it finished, and you do not go back on your word. Thank you that when we confess our sins, you are faithful to forgive us. You can be trusted and depended upon. Father, where we resist repenting because we doubt you, because we resent you, because we are afraid of you, help us. Forgive us. You truly are good. You are the center of everything, even me. And by our confession and repentance this morning and asking for your help, we are inviting you to take your rightful place in us, Jesus. We love you.